Welcome to Living Word Ministries with director and Bible teacher, Debbie Blank. Each week, Debbie examines current events through the lens of end times Bible prophecies. Please visit our website for information and past programs at livingwordministry.org. Now let's open our Bibles to focus on truths from God's Word with Debbie Blank. Happy Resurrection Sunday! He is risen! He is risen indeed. Resurrection Sunday is the most important day in all of human history since it's the culmination of the gospel message that started long ago. On Christmas, Jesus was born in this world so that he could be made in the likeness of men. He had to be that way so that he could humble himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, according to Philippians chapter 2. Well, then we have Good Friday. Jesus died to redeem us of our sins. He is the only one who could take away the penalty of sin so that we could believe in Jesus and have eternal life. But it's Resurrection Sunday that's the culmination of all this. Jesus conquered death. He opened the gates to heaven to all of those who would believe in Jesus. Think about it. If we just have Jesus' death, then we've been covered from our sins. The penalty has been paid. But what does that mean if we can't get into heaven and spend eternity with God? That's why we need the resurrection. Today, we're going to go beyond the empty tomb to understand what Christ's resurrection means to you and me. I'm Debbie Blank, welcoming you on this glorious day. And I'm co-host Jackie Sailors. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is crucial to the Christian faith, and the Bible gives much evidence for the truth of it. In fact, many skeptics have actually come to faith in Jesus and the Bible by trying to disprove the resurrection. So we can be sure that Jesus died, rose again, and lives today according to the gospel. But beyond that, what does it mean that Jesus is called the first fruits of the resurrection? Are we promised a resurrection of our own bodies? And if so, what does that mean? What can we expect and what will it be like? Jackie, you talked about evidence there. The Bible is full of evidence from the Old Testament and the New that you and I have the opportunity to be resurrected. But not just us, our Messiah had to be resurrected first so that we could have that opportunity. Let's look at some of those verses. Obviously, once sin came into the world, God said right away, he prophesied in Genesis 3.15, that a Redeemer would die for the sins of mankind and then conquer death. Well, we understand a little bit more as we go through Scripture. We can look to Job. That's believed to be the oldest book written in the Bible, even before Genesis was written. Job 19.25, he knew about the Redeemer. He says, as for me, I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will take his stand on the earth. So he expected his Redeemer to be alive at the end of the time, which Jesus is. In Isaiah 53.10, we see, But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would rather render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offering. He will prolong his days. That's the resurrection. And the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. So we have the death and the resurrection of Christ explained there. In Daniel 12:2, the Jews were so encouraged by this verse, knowing that they would be resurrected in the end days. Because it says, many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. 
That tells us that believers and unbelievers are going to be resurrected. The New Testament says that also in John chapter 5, starting in verse 28. Jesus tells us, do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth. Those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life. Those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. Jesus makes it clear that every person will be resurrected. However, we will not all spend eternity in the same location. Those who did the good deeds will enjoy life with God in eternal heaven. But those who committed evil deeds will be judged and relegated to eternal hell at the great white throne judgment in Revelation chapter 20. Please understand that while God looks at our deeds for the purpose of providing rewards or withholding rewards, it is our relationship or not with our relationship with Jesus that determines our eternal destiny. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 clarifies that when it says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not as a result of works that no man should boast. Finally, I think of one of the messianic psalms that tells us about Jesus in Psalm 16, 10, says, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. Jesus wouldn't be allowed to stay dead. He died physically, but he would be resurrected. Those are awesome promises for our Old Testament believers to know that the Messiah would be resurrected so that he would live forever and that they too could live forever with him. Going back to that passage in Job chapter 19, when he says he knows his Redeemer is going to be living, that he knows his Redeemer lives, he goes on to say, and as for me, I know my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will take his stand on the earth, even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh I shall see God, whom I myself shall behold, and whom my eyes shall see, and not another. So it sounds like Job is expressing his belief that he will be resurrected as well. That's right. He was believing that. God put that promise in people's hearts from the very beginning. Of course, the New Testament reiterates that to us also, because we are reminded that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. That's what he said to Martha when she was concerned about her brother being resurrected. When we look at John 11, verses 23 through 26, I am so impressed with that particularly for those who are grieving. And there's so many people who are grieving lost loved ones. And Jesus is comforting uh, Martha when he's speaking to her at the death of her brother Lazarus. And so Jesus says to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? And I think of Jesus saying that to her at that time and what that brought to her. She didn't know this at the time, but he was about to bring Lazarus out of the tomb. And that was a temporary resurrection for the rest of his life. But there is a permanent resurrection, and Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Martha knew about the resurrection. She just wasn't sure that Jesus was going to do that right now with her brother Lazarus. 
But Jesus was confirming to her the more important thing here, and that is resurrection for eternity, not just a temporary resurrection. Because he lives, he lives to make intercession for us. He lived on this earth as a humble servant. He was tempted in all things, the Bible says, and yet without sin. So he knows how we struggle. He knows that we need that hope for eternity. He knows that we're concerned about death. So he continually focuses us on the hope of the resurrection. Here with Martha, but in so many of these other passages that we have read, we need that hope. We need to be reminded that our salvation isn't just a one moment salvation here on earth when we surrender our lives to Jesus Christ. That's our justification with Christ. But we have our sanctification with him, which is our continuous ongoing relationship, saved relationship with Jesus Christ on this earth. And then we have the remainder of our born again experience. And that is the glorification of our relationship with Jesus Christ that will take place in heaven. So salvation is not just a one-time experience. It walks us through all of our lives and all of eternity from the moment we accept Christ. He tries to explain that throughout the Gospels. I hope we will listen to Jesus' exhortations to Martha when he says, Do you believe this? Romans 5.10 is one of the greatest passages that expresses the importance of the death and burial of Christ. When Paul writes, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we should be saved by his life. So the gospel message is one. It's not just the death of Christ. It's also the resurrection of Christ. The one saves us from our sins. We're reconciled to God. And the other one saves our eternal life. So we don't have to go through the second death. And Jesus even prophesied his own death and resurrection so that his disciples would be able to understand what was going to happen. Now, they had a little trouble understanding that, but he did tell them. And so we're looking at John chapter 10, verses 17 through 18. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. What an encouragement that is, because it tells us that the Jews didn't kill Jesus, Pilate didn't kill Jesus. Jesus laid down his own life. That means he died. And then he took it up again, which means he was resurrected from the dead. And this, of course, was a prophesying to his disciples that that was going to happen so that they would be ready. When these things happened, they wouldn't be surprised. Now, unfortunately, they were. They didn't quite understand this at the time until later, and the Holy Spirit showed them what was happening. Fascinating to me that the real first time I see Jesus telling his disciples about his death and resurrection was right after this glorious time at Caesarea Philippi when Jesus said to his disciples, who do people say that I am? And then he said to them, who do you say that I am? And Peter said, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. After he said that, then Jesus said to his disciples, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised on the third day. So he waited until he, 
they knew, really understood that he was the Messiah before he shared God's ultimate plan for the Messiah. How important that was for Jesus to explain that, but not until they understood him as the Messiah. There are lots of other places where Jesus explained his death and resurrection. Probably the most curious one is in Matthew 27, 62 to 64. It says, now on the next day, the day after the preparation, that means after Jesus had died, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered together with Pilate and said, sir, we remembered that when he was alive, that deceiver said, after three days, I am to rise again. So even the Jews recognized that Jesus promised his resurrection. And we know that all of the religious leaders except the Sadducees believed in the resurrection of life. So this isn't a new concept throughout the Bible, throughout Jesus' prophecies, even the religious leaders understood the importance of the resurrection. So the question is, what is the resurrection? We certainly know from the gospel accounts that that's when the stone was rolled away from Jesus' grave and he was resurrected on the third day, Sunday, after his death. It tells us more about the resurrection. Probably the best passage to understand it comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. It begins in verse 1 by saying, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel. So Paul is explaining what the gospel is. This gospel I preached to you, which you also received, in which also you stand. Very important. We must not just hear the gospel. We must receive it and we must stand on it. Verse 2 by which also you were saved. It's the gospel message that saves us when we receive and when we stand. If you hold fast the word which I preached to you, that doesn't mean, oh, well, some of you haven't maybe. It means if indeed you and I hear the message, receive it, stand on it, and then get saved. Some will hear and not do that. But if you do that, you are saved. Unless you believed in vain, it says. Verse 3 now in 1 Corinthians 15 says what the gospel is. For I delivered to you first importance, which I have also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Those are the scriptures we've just read. And that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. That's it. That's the gospel message. Now, you can't just believe in your head that Christ died and he rose again from the dead. That doesn't mean anything. That's just head knowledge. But if you believe the truth that he is God, what his death meant, which was a redemption of our sins, what his resurrection meant, which is life everlasting for us, that opportunity, if we'll believe, that's a gospel message. It went on to say in verse five, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the 12. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. By the way, James was his brother. His brothers didn't believe that he was the Messiah until after he died and was resurrected. And then they did. Verse 8, And last of all, as it were to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. This is Paul. For I am the least of the apostles, who am not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God within me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. 
That's the foundation of the gospel message, Jesus' death, Jesus' resurrection. And what you just listed wasn't a lot of uh, philosophical arguments, but what you listed was facts, the kinds of facts that some of these atheist skeptics that I referred to at the beginning decided to take on. And when they researched all of that, they decided that it had to be fact that Jesus was resurrected. So there's a confirmation from the Old Testament scriptures that this is a fulfillment. And then you have somebody who could research those events that you just listed, the eyewitnesses that saw him resurrected and so forth. It just made it undeniable. And so we can know for sure that Jesus was resurrected. Other proof can come from Acts chapter 1, verse 3. Here it says, To these Jesus also presented himself alive after his sufferings by many convincing proofs. We're talking here about his apostles, his disciples. So he was presented alive by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. What are those convincing proofs? Some of the things you just mentioned. This word, Greek word for convincing proofs, only occurs here in the New Testament. That's significant since no other event in biblical history has been confirmed more certainly than Christ's resurrection. So the convincing proofs, what were they? Well, first probably is the empty tomb. Jesus wasn't there. Now, the religious leaders paid the guards to say that somebody stole his body. But the fact is, Jesus' body was never found. The fact is, there were no human remains obvious in Garden's tomb right now in Jerusalem that is believed to be the burial place of Jesus Christ. Jesus appeared to so many people, as you mentioned. You look at the changed life of the apostles. When Jesus was on the cross, nobody was there with him but a few women and John for a while. They scattered, and certainly Peter denied him. And yet when the resurrection took place, their lives were changed. Then when Pentecost took place, they were the greatest evangelists for Jesus Christ and the beginning of the church. The church never could have been formed on a dead body. It was formulated because of the risen Christ who lives now to make intercession for us in heaven, according to Hebrews seven twenty four and 25. No other prophet is alive. No other Messiah or God is alive, but Jesus is. The New Testament writers throughout the book, they testify and they preach about Jesus Christ. In the book of Acts, every sermon that's written out, not just mentioned as a sermon, includes the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, because those are what people need to believe in to be saved. And that's what the disciples believed in. And then you can simply look at the worldwide observance of Resurrection Sunday. We don't have that with many other holidays that are observed by religion. Some do have theirs, but certainly nobody has the resurrection of their Lord and Savior as a day to celebrate. As you mentioned, the changed lives of the disciples, every one of them gave their lives. They were persecuted or they were executed for their strong belief that he was resurrected. So when they scattered and were afraid and were huddling together and afraid of the authorities who were um, trying to make sure that nobody stole the body and all of those things surrounding those first few days after Christ was buried, we have coming from that a church, a church that lasts until this day, will last until Jesus comes for us because of the belief, because they knew that Jesus was resurrected. 
people have said, nobody's going to die for something they know not to be true. Those disciples died for something they knew to be true. They all did, except John. Except John. John didn't, but he was severely persecuted. We can expect, as Jesus was persecuted, that we will be too. But we can find joy in that through Jesus Christ, just as Paul did. We can read about that in the book of Philippians. Let's move on in 1 Corinthians 15, because in verse 20, it explains the timing of the resurrection. It says, but now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. So that confirms Christ has been raised. He's the first fruits. That means he had to be the first one that was raised. And when it says those who are asleep, that's anyone else who has died. So the Old Testament believers, until the time of Christ's resurrection, they could not be resurrected because Christ had not yet been. Verse 21, for since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, where Christ has to be raised first from the dead before anybody else can. After that, those who are Christ at his coming. Now, I believe that's referring to the rapture of the church when Christ comes in the air for his church, as well as the coming to the earth when he comes after the tribulation and will resurrect all those believers who died during the tribulation period so their bodies and their souls can be brought together in resurrection. So first fruits is Jesus Christ. The second are those who are Christ is coming. And then comes the end when he delivers up the kingdom to the God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power. And that's the very end right before the new heaven and the new earth and the new Jerusalem are brought into existence. That means there'll be another resurrection of all those people who lived through the millennial kingdom who will be resurrected before eternity. Because the fact is, we have to all be resurrected. Our bodies and our spirits have to be reconciled together. How will that look? Well, going on in 1 Corinthians 15, which is called the resurrection passage, we see in verse 42, so also the resurrection of the dead. It is sown a perishable body. It is raised an imperishable body. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. That tells us we're going to have some kind of a new body in heaven, a body that doesn't need to eat or drink, that doesn't need to sleep, that just has a perpetual existence that has the ability to do that. It'll be different. This is a perishable body. It will die. It will decay. The eternal body will never do that. We have some clue of what we're going to be like because of what Jesus was like when he was resurrected. And I'm looking at 1 John 3, 2, where he says, Beloved, we are now children of God, and what we will be has not yet been revealed. We know when Christ appears, we will be like him, for we will see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself, even as Christ is purified. Okay, we have some idea. We're going to be like him. We just don't have the whole picture yet but we can trust. That's right. Going on in 1 Corinthians 15, the passage continues in verse 49 to say, and just as we have been born the image of the earthly, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly. And that's what you say, the image of Christ. 
Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. That could be the time of the rapture there where body and soul are brought together to receive the new body. The resurrection is a new body, a permanent body brought into sync with our souls, with our spirits. You can look at Jesus. After he was resurrected, his body was totally different. He could walk through walls. He might have eaten. It gives us the idea of that when he had fish in Galilee. Maybe not, but it wasn't necessary. There was no space or time with him. It will be that way with us. Once we have that imperishable body, that's the resurrection. 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty three. For this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. But when the perishable will put on the imperishable, and this mortal will put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's the answer. Through Jesus Christ, we have victory over death. We have victory over the sting of death. We now can look forward to what Adam and Eve had in the Garden of Eden before sin entered. And that was a perfect environment with God that could have been forever for them had they not sinned. It will definitely be forever for us. And whatever it is, it'll be perfect. That's how he designed it to be. He ends the passage in 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty-eight with a word of exhortation and application for you and I. He says, therefore, what does that mean? It points all the way back to the whole chapter of everything we have through Jesus Christ, through his resurrection, with our new bodies, with eternity with him, with bodies that will live forever, with our souls that will be recognizable And be able to recognize. He says, therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. What an encouragement that is. Because since we know we will receive imperishable bodies that are like Christ, that will be with him forever, how are we to live in this earth? Be steadfast. That means that we remain pure before the Lord, obedient to his commands, walking with him always, steadfastly. And then it says immovable. I think of how we plant our feet in cement so that we cannot be moved to the right or the left. But this is a spiritual cement that nothing will sway us. And the only way we can live Immovable is if we know Christ and know his word, because otherwise the world and the false that we see in the world will sway us. Then it goes on to say, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Always mean continuous, ongoing, doing God's work here on earth. That means knowing him, following him, obeying him, and knowing that no matter what happens, whether it's good or bad, whether we're persecuted or whether we're living for Christ, in everything we do, no matter the consequences, Our toil is not in vain in the Lord. There is a reward and we will receive it. The question to you is, 
will you receive Christ's eternity through his death, his burial, and his resurrection? Will you turn to Jesus today? Will you make today the first day of the rest of your life as you turn to Jesus and surrender your life to him? That's the most important thing you can do because that decision will determine your eternity. Thank you for joining us today on Living Word Ministries with Debbie Blank. This is a listener-supported show. If you'd like to support this program or contact Debbie Blank, you may do so at P.O. Box 540-003, Omaha, Nebraska, 68154, or visit our website at livingwordministry.org. Please tune in each week at this same time for Living Word Ministries with Debbie Blank.